Well, perhaps like me, you did find it a bit hard to say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God at the end of that gospel reading, because it's not actually what we really want to hear, is it? Uh, This turbulence, this unrest. I don't know about you, but I sometimes imagine if I could live in the past, where would I like to live? Where would I go back to? And I have this idea, you see, how really nice it would be to go and live in Tudor times. There would be these beautiful big houses and um, it would always be spring uh, and there wouldn't be any noise and pollution and people would be singing madrigals and Morris dancers would be dancing on the lawn and it would all be really very nice. So I sort of think, yes, I'd like to go and live in Tudor times until I think to myself, well, you know, this is a fantasy, isn't it, really? Because people in Tudor times, particularly during the Reformation, were living in very cataclysmic times. Imagine living in Canterbury at the time when the the abbey was pulled down. Imagine living in Canterbury at the time when Becket's shrine was despoiled. All the things that, that you thought were there and were secure and were things that were familiar and gave you a sense of belonging are being destroyed. And then you think of the martyrs who were burned alive over at Winchip on Martyr's Field. It really wasn't such a nice time to live after all, perhaps. And that led me to think about this morning's gospel and think that really, in every time, people have lived in difficult circumstances. People must have thought, it can't have been this bad, I wish I lived some other time. That's a, that must have been something that people thought all through the ages. It's not just us. And when we read this bit about the destruction of the temple in Mark's Gospel, by the time that Mark's Gospel was composed, the temple would probably have been destroyed and people would have seen that happen in their own time. The destruction of something that they held dear. The destruction, perhaps, of something in which they felt their hopes were invested. And so this passage that we've had this morning, I was reading in a commentary, describes the first part of it as the miseries, you know, what will go wrong, and the last part of it as the sufferings, the things that have to go through before things turn out. And so what are we to make of this? Where is the good news in this? Because it occurs to me that we need good news now, perhaps in our lifetime, more than ever. I mean, my grandfather was in the First World War, my father was in the Second World War, My brother and I have been fortunate to live at a time when there wasn't conflict that we were actually involved in. But nevertheless, we do seem to have got to a point, and I'm not making a point about Brexit here, but we do seem to have got to a point where things are in confusion and we can't quite see the way forward. And somehow it's difficult to think that the world is moving towards peace. And it's easy to get depressed. I was talking to a lady the other day who said to me, Well, of course, I switch it all off now. I don't watch Newsnight. I don't watch the news. I might hear the headlines, but I've decided it's not good for my mental health to have all this bad news coming at me all the time. And so it's difficult to see at the moment what good news we as a Christian community can actually put into the situation that we find ourselves in. It's very unsettled. It's a time of confusion. Now, the key word, I think, is hope. In the letter that we had to the Hebrews, we are asked to hold fast 
to a confession of hope without wavering. And let's face it, if we're not going to go around showing people that we've got hope, who are going to? Don't you think that's one of the, the greatest things we can do as Christians in our mission to the community that we live in today is to show them that we have got hope. Now, this idea of all these awful things that Jesus talks about, the sort of apocalyptic message about the, 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 the turmoil and the confusion that the world is going to be in, I was interested to read about apocalyptic writing, that actually it was important for people who wanted to say that things can get better not to actually identify, in particular, the people who they felt were oppressing them, because that would put them in danger. So what do they do? They use all this very picturesque language about upheaval, about the world seeming to be going through birth pangs, about, about it being hard to express the despondency they find themselves in. And they do this in a sort of imaginary way because it doesn't actually point the finger at anybody because in some circumstances it would be very dangerous to do that you know if only we got rid of the Romans um, then things would be all right but probably it wasn't a very sensible thing to be saying so a point about apocalyptic writing also is that it's meant to encourage hope and perseverance so when you hear this morning's gospel, it's not meant to make you feel more miserable. Oh dear, aren't things awful? And here's Jesus saying, aren't things terrible? And what's going to happen? It's actually meant to give you the strength to persevere in hope. And that's what it's intended to do. Ah, well, you may say, it's all very well to talk in these glib terms about this hope. But what is this hope that it's our mission to take out to people? Well, first of all, I think we have to think about this idea of um, being alarmed or disturbed. What's the difference between being alarmed and being disturbed? Well, I think if I was alarmed, it would mean I would kind of freeze, you know? And I wouldn't know what to do and I'd be in a panic. But if I'm disturbed, it means that I recognize that there's something going on that I might be able to do something about. And that's not quite the same as being alarmed. So when we read that the translation that talks about alarms, the Greek word can also mean disturbance. And I think, in a sense, disturbance is a much more positive word than being alarmed. Um, I was at a conference recently, and a person next to me said, I think I, about himself, I must be a very... Um, frightening character because every time I meet X in the corridor or in the dining room, X kind of stares at me like a sort of frightened rabbit caught in the headlights. And, and I said, well, I can understand that actually. You are quite a scary person and we had a laugh. But to me, that's what being alarmed is. It's sort of freeze, you know? Whereas being disturbed, there's something moving if you're disturbed that says, there's something wrong here, but there might be something we can do to put it right. So I think that's important. It talks also about remaining faithful in the epistle. So we've got to believe that the message that we have is something that it's worth remaining faithful to. 
that it's not the sort of message that we just give up if it doesn't seem to be working and go on to something else. The gospel isn't like that, is it? If we've got conviction that the life, the ministry, the death, and however we interpret the resurrection of Jesus gives us something to hold on to that says to us that at the end of the day, love is going to come out of this stronger than anything else. We've got to hold on to it. We've got to be faithful. And that links in with another thing, which says we mustn't be led astray from the way. Might be very easy to go after some other sort of fixes, mightn't it? You know, other people might. I mean, computers now. Look on your internet when I go into my search engine. It's absolutely full because I, I have this thing that says lifestyle. I keep meaning to change it because it's not helpful, really. But it's absolutely full of all these adverts about how my life could be better, how I could look better. Well, that would be nice. How I could dress better, how I could feel younger, how I could actually be more socially successful, how I could follow this celebrity or that celebrity. And if I did that, of course, my life would be completely sorted out. But it's not so, is it? We know that these things are not true. But we do know that the gospel message is true. That's why we're here. We believe there is something in it that rings true to our experience and rings true to our hope. And therefore, we stick with it. Now, I will confess to you that I did read something in the commentary that I didn't agree with and found very difficult. Because it did say that for the early Christians, the idea that actually God was in control and God had a plan was something which they held on to. Now, I'll tell you why I found this difficult, but I thought I'd share it with you. That, you know, I find it very difficult to, to think that what the God that Jesus shows us actually has a plan that includes famines and earthquakes and all those things which cause so much destruction and so much death. You know, quite frankly, if, if that is seen to be part of God's plan, then I think I want to opt out of that idea altogether. So I didn't agree with that. Now, you might like to think about that, and you might think, well, you know, you can't just pick and choose which bits you actually want. But I found that very hard, and I wanted to ask lots of questions about it. Do we really think that the God we see in Jesus has a plan that includes all this misery for other people? Well, I would... I would deal with that by saying, again, this apocalyptic language is it's deliberately imaginary. It's deliberately imaginary, and I wouldn't take it as being literal, but you might have a different view about that. So perhaps we need to think about the positive approach that we're going to have. We're going to remain faithful. We're going to be disturbed but not alarmed. We're not going to be led astray from the truth that we believe in. We're going to follow the Jesus who says, I am. Because Jesus, in this passage, we read other people will come and say, I am he. So I am is obviously a very powerful phrase, isn't it? But the person that we follow who says, I am, is Jesus. I'm um, helping with a, a group, a diocesan group at the moment, which is doing a course called Deepening Discipleship. And last week, we had a video of a man talking about rabbis in the time of Jesus. 
And the point that the man in the film was, was making was that when you followed a rabbi, a rabbi was a person who you felt held the, somehow the key to opening up the scriptures. Um, and if you followed a rabbi, you walked behind him, and therefore the dust of his feet, uh, because of being in Palestine, the dust would come back on you. So there was a saying which was, may you be covered with the dust of the rabbi. And that was supposed to be a positive thing, that you actually had, you know, you were following him and you were covered with his dust. And I thought that that was a really good image. So when we go out of here this morning, we are going to be covered with the dust of hearing Jesus speak to us through the Gospels. Covered with the dust. And who else would we follow? I mean, look at it this way. Who else's dust would you like to be covered with? Who else would you put your faith, your trust in? I can't think of anybody else apart from Jesus who has said to me that life has a meaning and a purpose and that somehow love is the key to all this. So you see, I think there's quite a lot in this morning's gospel, however depressing it might seem. And what it needs to do is to inspire us to go out with this dust and actually take this dust to places where there isn't any hope and people who feel in despair and people who feel in hope. It talks about us having a new and living hope. There's no point in having a dead hope, is there? I mean, quite frankly, you know, I would love to uh, go back to my childhood in many respects uh, and, you know, go to church and sing Chew to Church. I would just love it. But actually, you know, I've realized it's no good being a relic and a fossil, is it? It's no good having a dead hope and continually looking back and thinking, oh, it was better then and things have gone down the pan. We've got to have a new and a living hope. That's what's so important. And we've got to take that out with us as we take out the dust. Now, finally, I saw something in this week's Gazette that I thought was very interesting. I like looking at those, um, that article where they show Canterbury in the past. You know, they have photographs of places in Canterbury in the past and sometimes what they're like now. But in this particular issue, there was a picture of one of the old mills. And apparently it was the one down by where Dean's Mill is now, down by St. Radigan's. And apparently this mill was absolutely massive. It was a sort of a landmark, um, not because it had any particular architectural significance, but because it was so huge. And it eventually got burnt down. I forgot to jot down the date. But it got burnt down, so it's not there anymore, of course, and we have something else there. Well, you see, I think... In a sense, that's a bit like us and hope, isn't it? That some of the things that we held dear to have actually gone. We've got to say goodbye to them. They're not there anymore. We've got to look at what is here now. We've got to think about living in this time and in this place and what hope we have got to give to people. And I'm not going to tell you what particular hope you're going to give to people because your hope will all be different, won't it? because you will actually go out and say things from your experience, from your interpretation of the whole Jesus event. We will all say different things to people that can give them hope. 
But the most important thing is that in our time and in our place, however difficult things seem, however confused things seem, we realize that we have got a message of hope to give to people. And we've got to go out covered in the dust to somehow take that message to them. If we go out and we say, aren't things dreadful, don't know where things are going, can't see a way through this, people will think, oh, well, Christians aren't any different from anybody else then. They don't actually have anything to believe in. They don't actually have anything that inspires them. No, this isn't the case. And I've been feeling so kind of low about things recently that I've decided I've got to snap out of it. And in a strange sort of way, looking at this morning's gospel, dire though it may seem, has actually helped me to do that.